The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, here we are before you, gathered by you, thankful. We've sung of it, we'll consider it in your word, we'll, we'll think of it throughout the rest of the day and again this evening. You've done something marvelous that we remember today. You have stepped into the world to save it, to save people, not just the world as a concept, but to save people. And with us and for us to make a, a community, to make a place that is, that is right, that is characterized by shalom, as whole and just and good. We've always wanted that. We've longed for it. We've missed it because it isn't here. And then you acted to bring it about and are still doing so. And one day we'll finish the work. And it's, it's our best, our greatest, our highest dream, but we never would have imagined how you would do it to send your son low and humble and meek, a baby. So thank you for that, Lord, and help us to think about it again from this passage before us this morning, to think about it in a way that is encouraging and, and perhaps provocative and produces thanks. Open up your word, teach this morning, Lord. Draw praise to your name and do good to us, your people. And for some here or some who hear this who maybe aren't quite sure who you are, haven't quite closed with you yet, aren't Christians, would you speak to those of us like that too? Would you open eyes, would you save this morning? So build your people and honor your name, we pray. Thank you. Amen. Often when we see something that's not right in the world, we want to fix it or find somebody who can. Awkward and erroneous things, broken and crooked things, evil things, evil situations. And the more grievous the situation is, the more quickly we want it dealt with. And the more that we see that in us, what, what we're seeing there is, is a little marker. We're all kind of like that because we all resemble God. And God's like that too. God looks at this world and sees in it a lot that is not right. More than we do, in fact, because he sees perfectly. He sees the whole picture. And thankfully, he too wants it all fixed, the inaccurate and the broken and the evil. More than us, in fact, he knows what's really wrong and how wrong wrong is. More than us, he knows what the, the world was made to be, what, what is right and what, what is good and what prospers us, how he made us to flourish. More than us, he knows how to get that changed, how to get it fixed, and is highly motivated to do so, which should be encouraging to us. And 
to think about is perhaps a bit perplexing because he seems to be taking his own sweet time in doing so. If he is in fact all of that, if he is in fact fixing it, if he is in fact redeeming it, if he is in fact restoring it, if in fact he's even there, why is this still this? It is still this. I mean, we're, we're talking about, we're singing about, we're, we're kind, of, kind of grooving in a, in a sweet and, and good and wholesome way this morning. But if you like lift up your eyes and you, and you look around anywhere, open up a newspaper, click, click on an internet service, look at your neighbor, the world is full of evil. Still. If, if God is who we say he is, and if he actually is motivated to fix these things, that there, are, frankly, there's some low-hanging fruit that I might think he would address right now. But he hasn't. What gives? As we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen this question raised before. Most recently, we saw it in chapter 11 by John the Baptist as he sat in prison, languishing there, looking at his own unjust execution at the hands of an evil king, and asked, what gives? He sent messengers to ask this very question of Jesus. I, 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 I thought that you were the one come to fix everything and to right the wrongs. And there's some easy ones to see, and you haven't... So, are you? What are you up to? Was I wrong? If you are the one, why aren't you at work? I, I don't get it. It's a reasonable question. And the answer given to John then and the answer given to us here today also in Matthew 12, similar answer, is that God's way of fixing things through Jesus may not be quite like how we do it may not be quite the timing or the, quite the manner or quite the way that we do it, but he is, in fact, doing it. So trust him. That's what we're going to look at in Matthew 12 today. Not a Christmas text per se. And if you've been here in past weeks, you notice it's, it's actually just next in Matthew. I didn't do anything clever this morning. I just took the next passage. But it raises all the same themes from Christmas. God sending his Savior into the world meekly so as to bring about the justice that we all want and need. That's what we're going to look at this morning. A Christmas text, Matthew 12. Let me read verses 15 to 21 and then we'll draw out two observations from it. It reads, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. It's Matthew chapter 12. 
Two observations this morning. Here's the first. As God's chosen servant, Jesus came in sweet but surprising meekness. As God's chosen servant, Jesus came in sweet but surprising meekness. Verse 15 begins with Jesus, aware of this. Well, aware of what? That's the last verse from from last week's passage. The Pharisees there we saw had had set a trap for Jesus. They were looking for something, just looking for anything with which they could accuse him and, and therefore discredit him. Maybe like they could trick him into working on the Sabbath, perhaps, breaking the Sabbath law. And Jesus, knowing that, deliberately stepped directly into the center of that trap and healed a man right in front of everybody teaching then that it is lawful to do the work of doing good on the Sabbath. And verse 14, right above, tells us the response of the Pharisees. Now, this is not all like the national leadership of Israel. This is just the local Pharisees there. They, they see this done right in front of them, and they do not like it. And they went out, and it says, started plotting how to destroy him. So Jesus is there in the middle of the synagogue acting in power and they are plotting how to destroy him. It looks like maybe we're headed for a showdown. But Jesus, this is what he's aware of, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. The language of pulling out of a hot spot. He does not stick around to fight with them, either verbally or in some sort of power contest. Not that the facts aren't on his side, not that he's not really, really good at verbal argument. Not that he doesn't have the power, in fact. We see that as he just healed a man there, and as he departs, a whole bunch of people follow him, and he heals countless people. We've seen this again and again and again. Indiscriminate compassion. Jesus just heals people. He doesn't like first check their credentials to see if they're with him or not. If they have a problem, he indiscriminately heals. Doesn't say from what? from everything. And then he gives another command to them, verse 16. He healed them and ordered them not to make him known. Not to spread word everywhere about who he was and what he was doing. Why is that? I mean, people should know about this. This stuff is amazing. And of course, nobody was able to keep it all secret. People did know about him, but as far as Jesus was concerned, as far as it was up to him, he wasn't spreading word. He wasn't seeking to, to spread the message about himself. Well, why? Well, one very practical reason, we've seen this before, that Jesus knows that the crowds don't really know who he actually is. So if they were to go about talking, they're, they're going to misunderstand who he is, what he's doing, why he's doing it, what words like Messiah mean. And so he's going to be spreading a whole, they're going to be spreading a whole bunch of misinformation about him and stirring up all kinds of trouble that he does not want. We've talked about that before. Surely that's applicable here. But what Matthew explicitly says is how this has something to do with the prophet Isaiah from some 600 years earlier, give or take. This withdrawing from the tense environment, from the growing confrontation with the Pharisees, this healing of people and then don't leave here and tell everybody about me. Matthew says that behavior, verse 17, was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he gives us this long, kind of loose quote. It's loose because he he adds in a few things here and there to kind of clarify what the prophecy is getting at. 
but there's no, no doubt where it comes from. It's Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. An extremely important passage where God predicted that one day he would send to the world a special servant to do his special work. Now, anytime anybody does anything for God, God can call them and does call them a servant, but this is the servant. This is the work. A special servant. God said through Isaiah, and he had a lot to say about him in the chapters that follow, in the 40s into the Isaiah 50s, but it all begins right here in 42. I'm going to send my servant. And, and so to speak, like looking down through the ages, he says, Behold, my servant, the servant, the, the servant with whom I am well pleased, the servant who is my delight, the servant who is my beloved one, the servant on whom I will cause my spirit to rest. This is the one. This is the chosen and called servant. And then he explains more in chapters that follow about him. And that's from Isaiah. And Matthew, in quoting that, is saying, what Isaiah sort of did, you know, behold, that one is Jesus. That's what Matthew's doing here. That one is right here. He's connecting the Old Testament prophecy to this man standing right in front of them, Jesus, like he has done a bunch of times. If you've been here as we've been working through Matthew, you've seen this over and over again. Matthew, more than most, is very concerned to show prophecy fulfilled, prophecy fulfilled in both words said and predicted deeds done. Even one that we're talking about today. He will be born in Bethlehem, and he was. Of the family of David, and he was. You can't control your lineage and your birthplace. But he was. Again and again and again, Matthew is trying to point out what God was trying to point out. This one right here, Jesus, is the servant, the one on whom all of our attention should be focused. So if you haven't been here in the past to see that done again and again and again, even in fact using this very verse, if you recall the baptism, this very verse he actually used before when Jesus was baptized and he came out of the water, this is my beloved son. You haven't seen that before. There's something to note here. God's trying to draw our attention. The Bible's trying to draw all of our attention onto Jesus. This one right here is the servant. So note that. However, that's not really the point. Matthew's main point in writing this here in chapter 12 is not just to do more of what he's already done a lot of, pointing out Jesus. You can tell because he doesn't stop with that verse, behold my servant, but he goes on to say more in more verses. He's actually got more to say about how Jesus fulfills the servant's work than that it's Jesus. How is he? What, what's, what's he like? God the Father sends his chosen servant into the world to do this particular special mission of saving the world, restoring it. When he steps into the world in the power of God to carry out his assigned work, what is he like? What's his dominant demeanor? How would you do it? 
If, if you were writing the script, how would you do it? How would you send God to earth in the power of the Spirit? Verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. That second phrase, no voice in the streets, does not mean like absolute silence. It's just a poetic way of restating the first line. Of course, Jesus talked in the streets, but he wasn't quarrelsome. He's not arguing in the streets. He's not come to duke it out in public. He's not here to debate or to bicker. He's not launching a, a media blitz or setting out on the campaign trail. He's not here to confront raise a public outcry, rally the masses, start a protest movement. In fact, he's going to go out of his way to avoid all of that. All of that. There's not going to be any fighting. not going to be any physical or verbal contesting. And any hint of that that comes towards him, Jesus withdraws from. That is no way to gain followers and no way to get elected. What are you doing? People ask that of him constantly. You can read in the Gospel of John, in fact, his brothers, who knew Jesus was up to something, they, they ask him that, if you're trying to gain public followers, you are really bad at this. You've got you to gotta get out there. And he doesn't. Of course, people heard about him, but he doesn't push, as far as it's up to him, he's content to just kind of stay back. They want somebody who's going to step out there and who's going to free them from all the public problems that they have, especially the public problem of Rome. If you're the sent one, you have to go public with this and have to confront, and you seem to have the power, you got to wield that power and make it happen, and Jesus instead feels the temperature rising and leaves and tells anyone who might be won over to not tell anybody else about it. That is odd. And there's more. Verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Now, a reed is... I think it's in the family of, of tall grasses. It's essentially a tall grass with a, a solid, hollow stalk. So it's, it's stiff, it's firm, but it's really fragile. People used them for all kinds of applications, but everything they would use it for depended on it being straight, tall, and strong. So if it was cracked or bent or warped, bruised, it was worthless. All that was left would be to break it up completely so that it would fit either into the garbage or into the fire and just go get another one. They're, all, they're everywhere. Throw this one out, get another one. And a wick, the wick being discussed there, it's, it's the wick from a, a, an oil lamp and it would kind of suck up the oil and it would burn. And a, a smoldering wick, we might be more familiar with candle wicks, a smoldering wick, it won't go out but it's not giving any more light or flame. It's just smoking and filling up the room with smoke. And common sense obvious, what you do is put it out. We can't see or breathe in here anymore. Put it out. But God's servant won't snuff out the failing troubled wick. And he won't finish off the weak, compromised wheat reed. That is... 
He won't snuff out failing, troubled people. He won't finish off and discard the weak and compromised. He will bear with such ones, facing and enduring all the difficulties that come along with crowds of people who are stumbling through life, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, who are blind and weak, who are weary and heavy laden, full of troubles, afflicted and in need of healing. People like us. Maybe not all of us. Some of us are powerful and brilliant and wealthy and influential and connected, but not many. God usually chooses the weak to shame the strong and the foolish to shame the wise. This is people like us. This is the world. And he won't finish off such ones. In all of our messed upness in your life, your past and present, he is not about to snap you like a stick or squash you like a bug. Think about this for yourself. This is not theory about them ones. This is about you and me, us, your neighbor, your family members. This is God's servant here to be long-suffering with the lowly and the broken, with the weary and the heavy laden and the weighed down, patient and not pushy. He is meek, not standing upon his rights or privileges, not, not demanding that people worship him as the God that he is, not demanding that they give him all the honor and all the respect that he deserves, the, the deference as the creator of all things. He doesn't demand all that, he doesn't stand on that, but, but he lays all that down, gentle and lowly, on knees, lying on the ground saying, Hi, come, 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 here, come. Which means for you, that he is extremely approachable. You could, you can easily engage with him and you will find him kind and patient. Not aghast at your brokenness or your failure or your sin or your evil. The stuff you've never told anyone else about the things you know you've done wrong, the things you know you are doing wrong right now. He already sees it. And he isn't this close to snapping with rage. Nope. Nope. And he won't be irritated at your folly or your confusion. If you have to ask him again, how is that? I, I can't try. Why is that? I don't get it. He will not be exasperated for the tenth time. Nope. Now you can't fool him. He sees right through you. He knows you better than you know you. But he's bearing with you, holding out his offer to you. If you want it, come to me. I promise you, you will find rest for your soul. You cannot find it anywhere else in the world. 
Even the good things that I made, if you, if you lean only on them, if you seek only in them, let alone everything else that you are inclined to seek after, if you look for that to, to heal you and fix you and give you life, it'll all fail you and it'll just end up crushing you. I promise you, I'm the only one that has a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. Come to me. I'm the only one who will give you rest for your soul. I promise you, you'll find me gentle and lowly in heart. That's what I am. Come. Perhaps that is not how you expect the holy God full of power to be. Maybe it seems too good to be true. But there's a reason for that. Ever since humanity first fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, we first fell into sin, we have been broken inside, and in our hearts and in our minds, we doubt God's goodness. We do not trust him. And there is an enemy of your soul that whispers into your ear, yeah, that's right, you shouldn't. He is out to get you, run. But 600 years prior to this point, God predicted that he'd show up on earth like this, meek. And then he did. Born in the smallest of towns to common people parents, not the rich and famous, born in a cattle stall and laid in a manger. Not a palace, not a bed made out of gold with goose down, no, no, straw. And over there, manure. He grew up very well acquainted with what it is to be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows who knew grief. It's his own story what he himself embodied. It's how he treated people, healing countless of their afflictions without being contentious or quarrelsome, not looking to wield his mighty power to get the people who needed getting. And he is well aware there are people who need getting. He knows everything. We see him here in this passage retiring from confrontation, meek and lowly with those who are broken and hurting. We see it again and again in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the true servant of the Lord. This is the Son of God come in flesh, gentle and lowly. And he invites you to come to him. So come. And another point for us from a different angle we should come to him, and we should also copy him. Meekness like this, quite obviously, is Christ-likeness. It's what Christ is like. It's Christ-like. And if you recall, it's the third beatitude. It's what he's making a Christian to be. This should be high on our agenda. This, this should be like what we think about, I want to grow to be like him. This should be right up there. Meek, humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's it, all over the Bible. It's in the Beatitudes. It's, it's, it's modeled for us here. Humility like this, long-suffering, especially with people. It's probably the most challenging. It's, it's one thing to be long-suffering with traffic and with the government, but with people. 
This is what he's like, and this is what he calls us to be. It's what he's making us to be. This is Christ-likeness. So it's just worth asking here, is there any repentance in order? This is so sweet when you, when you sit in it. It, it, is, it is beautiful. It is almost too good to be true. It's pretty surprising, too. This is not what people were looking for, and it's probably not what many of us are thinking about. What we're, what we're expecting when, when we want God to step into the world and fix things, and because he is this way, we often are inclined to ask, is he even there? Is he doing anything? We don't have much room in our expectations for a Messiah who acts like this, who takes millennia to get it done. But he is getting it done. And that leads us to the second point. Here's the second observation. God is working powerfully through Jesus to make justice prevail. God is working powerfully through Jesus to make justice prevail, and this is the hope of the world. We're just looking at at how he is, what his manner is, and it's stated negatively, he's not quarrelsome, he's he's not going to snuff out struggling people. But if that's all there was to Jesus, if, if that was the end of that, and if that's all there was, we would be opening the door wide to a whole bunch of terribly misinformed caricatures. A lot of people talk about Jesus as the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who lets everything go and is really kind of like some passive grandfather who is overindulgent because he's so nice and so loving and frankly isn't really paying attention that much, lets the grandkids get away with anything. That's God. No, it isn't. The first point is remarkably, astonishingly true, but it is only the first point. Thankfully, there's a lot more here. Twice we see mention of justice the mission of Jesus, the servant, what he is doing. The other's how he's doing it. This is what he's doing. Say it positively. End of verse 18. I'll put my spirit on him. And if you hear language like that, you think about language like that, we should be realizing that the spirit of God, the, the presence of the spirit of God brings all of the person of God near. So in a very unique way, like I said, this is the servant doing the work with the spirit on him uniquely. This is something unique here. When God says, I will put my spirit on this one, you can look at Jesus, a real live human guy, a man. And in a way that's not true of anyone else, you're also looking at a guy who in him, on him, has the full presence of God Almighty. A man, God. What do you make of that? Well, there's not a lot here about the eternal relationship of the three persons of the one triune God, the Trinity. You see all those three persons right here. The one speaking, God the Father. God the Son, with God the Spirit resting upon him. They're, they're all three listed here, but we don't get a lot about, we don't get anything about the relationship. How does that all work together? We'd have to go elsewhere to explore that more. 
But what we see here right now, for this morning, we need to see that God's deliberate choice is right here. I'm going to send this one, this man, full of my presence. And he's going to be walking around the earth, if you will, carrying the greatest of all toolboxes to do the greatest of all jobs. He's going to have at his right hand me. The very presence of God, all of God's divine wisdom, all divine power, all divine compassion and creativity and patience and holiness, everything that God is, is right there in the man Jesus, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. That is, to the ends of the earth, to all people, not just to Jewish people, to everybody. And then end of verse 20. He will be this non-quarrelsome, non-antagonistic, meek, compassionate servant until he brings justice to victory. All the way until he wins. And God's justice covers all the earth as the waters cover the sea. He prevails. This is God's mission for Jesus, why the servant was sent to meekly make justice known and to make justice triumph in fact over all the earth like no one else could like no other group of people could like no other nation of people ever could to make what is right this is what justice is about justice is not just a verdict in a court trial justice is about what is right what is correct and good according to God in his eyes he's the judge He's come to make what is good and right be. He's come to make a kingdom characterized by righteousness and justice, a kingdom of shalom where everything is whole and everything is good and everything is fixed. Everything that needs to be dealt with has been dealt with. Every broken thing is fixed. Every bent thing is is straightened and strengthened. Every evil thing is cast out. And all that there is is good and right and pure and beautiful. Shalom. What we were made for and what we long for. The thing everybody's searching for, even if they don't have the word for it. That's what Jesus was born to bring, and it's what he did and is still doing to make justice prevail everywhere, not just by teaching about it. Sure, he taught, of course, we've seen a lot of that. He proclaimed the truth about what justice actually is, but the reason he can afford to not fight about it in contest with the Pharisees the reason he, he can afford to, to not push his agenda and make people agree with him is that he's not trying to bring this about, this, this good justice, this, this kingdom of shalom. He's not trying to bring it about by teaching about it, by explaining why we all should want it and persuading us to agree and then vote for him. He's not trying to bring it about by, by winning some legislative battle and getting different laws enacted. He's not trying to bring it about by by persuading opponents or browbeating them or putting them to the sword. 
He's not a politician. He's not a media social influencer. He's not a general, not a teacher. He's come to make justice prevail, born to die. He was, he, he was born, he, he came to, to go to the cross. That's how Jesus powerfully brings about justice, by meekly dying on the cross. Mightily taking on to himself. Think, think of what this would, would have cost him. You can see it some in his sweating of blood in the garden. You can see it some in his, in his anguish cry, why have you abandoned me? You, think about what, it, what strength it would take to take on to himself all of the injustice done by us. To take it onto himself and carry that burden up to the cross. That's might and meekness. It's, it's a lamb who is a lion. He carries all that up to the cross, paying for it so that justice may be done and we may be justly forgiven as our sin is atoned for in him and then justly brought back into relationship with God, the one that we'd broken and ruined. We ran from him. Jesus comes and sees that situation and meekly says, I'll take it all, and then mightily does so as to pay for sin and restore relationship and bring us back into connection if we trust him. All the ways that we have violated God's law in our minds, in our hearts, in our words, in our deeds, the injustice problem that's in the world is first one that is in us. And Jesus justly dealt with that by going to the cross Condemned by God, paying for it in death, and then rising again to new life. This is the gospel. It's what Christmas is about. Christmas is ultimately not about feel-good sentimentality. Christmas is not about an opportunity to regather the family and see those you haven't seen for a little while. I, I hope we all get a chance to do that, sure. But Christmas is about atonement. God providing a servant to do the work, to do the work of atonement, to do the work of going to the cross, to justly fix the injustice. Not to sweep it under the rug, not to ignore it, but to bring it all to a head and pay it. That's something. That's might and meekness, both met right there at the cross. That's how he fixes the problem in the world, by fixing the problem in me and in you. The, the core of his offer, come to me, come to me, is, is come to me as I die on the cross. Come to me as you, as you seek an atonement that you need and can't make. You can't make part of it. All this nonsense about we, we do what we can do and then he does the rest. We can't do anything. How do you partially die? How do you go to hell a little bit? You can't. We're doomed. And God says, meekly, I'll take it for you. What I offer you is me. I don't offer you more wisdom. I don't offer you a new technique. I don't, the, the life hack of, no, no, no. I offer you the cross. Come. You'll find in it a relief of burden and life forevermore. You'll find in it the fixing that you need and the fixing that all the world needs. Come. This is good news. If you're not a Christian, this is the hope that you have been looking for, even if you haven't known it.
Jesus says, come. Come with open, open arms, open hands. No, I don't bring anything. I have nothing, but I need this help. And he will help. Come to him repentant. Lord, here's me. I hold nothing back. And he'll take you and put your sin on his cross and give you in exchange his life. He'll give you back into relation, he'll give you relationship back into connection with God. And begin the process of renewing you, of restoring you, of growing you up like a child, maturing you. That's offered to you. And I know that most of us here this morning, you've heard that, you've taken that offer already. This is good news for you too. Because what it means, in all of your abiding brokenness, and if we're honest, we're still plenty messed up. And he still won't break the broken reed and snuff out the smoldering wick, you. He is not the kind of person that says, how many chances do I have to give you? I mean, I gave you all this and you squandered it. Well, that, that was the last opportunity. Nope. He's long-suffering with you, child of God, Christian. You can come to him and you'll find him there too. You'll find him open-armed with you still, 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 even amazing. Well aware of our failings, he will bear with you to grow you up, not to indulge your failings, but to mature you out of them. He's a good God. He made you for more, and he's committed to making you into more. He's working that story out in you, and as he does so in you, as he makes you a person within whom the justice of God prevails, then he will make around you a family in which the justice of God prevails, and a community, a church in which the justice of God prevails, and a city, a town, a state, a nation, a world in which the justice of God prevails. Increasingly, 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 until he finally comes and finishes it. He came once, but he is coming again a second time, and he will finish it all dramatically. This is good news. It is the hope of the world, and that's where the passage ends. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. Why? Because it's good. His name, him, he's good. The Savior that we all need sent as a humble, meek servant to bring about the fixing of each of us and of the world in a slow, natural, growing up, maturing sort of way, but in a real, powerful, and effective way. He was born, and he died, and he rose, and he reigns, and he's coming. This is the hope of the world. Is it your hope this morning? Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you did and for what you were doing and for what you will do. And thank you particularly this morning. Thank you for the, the alarming beauty of an almighty God who is meek. 
Thank you for the hope that provides for each of us, but not a meekness that is permissive, a meekness that is cleansing. That's what we really need. And you've given that too. Thank you. You are good. Grow in us thankfulness. Grow in us trust. Grow in us wonder and awe. Grow in us praise. Grow in us Christ-likeness. Build your church, Lord. And in us here, would you please be honored. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.